And welcome to another Wednesdays with Wheels. Sorry, we're a little bit late. I had a little bit of technical difficulty on my end. Man, I miss the days when we could just get together and do things like this instead of having to do them over a computer, over a, a uh, well, I'm using Live, but over a Zoom call or a Skype call. Technology is great until it isn't, and then it causes you to pull your hair out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm super excited about uh, this podcast because you know what a big hockey fan I am. Uh, in fact, I'm. for those of you that are, are watching, I'm wearing my Sabres jersey as we speak. First time I've broken it out since, uh, well, probably since the beginning of last season. Uh, but uh, I have a um, former NHL hockey player with us, the color analyst for the Rochester Americans, Mr. Rick Sealy. Rick, how are you? Doing great, David. Doing great. Glad to be here tonight. Thanks for thanks for doing this. Uh, I'm always interested to talk to people that have been professional athletes. And one of the f- first things I like to ask is, take us back to, uh, I know you had quite a junior career, uh, uh, but take us back to when you first got drafted into the NHL. Can you talk to us about that experience? Do you remember that day and what that was like? Well, I remember that day very well. And, uh, it was uh, the, the new and way of the future, which they didn't have a draft. They literally did a phone-in, and there was no presence, no walking up on stage or anything. And uh, my family, uh, we were in the harness racing business, and we had a farm with horses and that. And uh, I came in from the barn, and, and, and uh, I got a call from my agent at the time that said, Okay, you've been drafted. And I said, where? And he said, Buffalo, of course. I said, what? He says, yeah, Buffalo. And uh, I said, you're going to be getting calls from the uh, uh, from Punch Imlac. You'll be getting calls from the owners. You'll be getting calls from press. You need to be available to take those calls, which, which I did. I sat around. My parents were busy working in the barn. My brother was in the barn. <laughs> it just, you know, there was no hoopla. There was no nothing. And uh I think that was the only year they ever did it that way. It's it's so interesting. Now, did you have any idea that Buffalo was where you would end up? Well, it's interesting because I, I never grew up wanting to be a hockey player. Okay. I, I never had a, a fascination of it. Um, it's ironic because I was drafted in, when I was 16. I was drafted to junior hockey, and and the team that was that drafted me was the former Hamilton Red Wings, which wore the, wore the red and white same as the Detroit Red Wing colors. And uh, they had new ownership that year. And the uh, same general manager, same scouts, uh, but new ownership. And they actually changed the, the colors of the team. They were called the Hamilton Fin Cups, as the ownerships were, ownership was owned by the Finoc- Joe Finocchio and Ron and Mario Capito, hence Fin Cups. And uh, they changed the colors of the uniform, and they were actually the Buffalo Sabre colors. Really? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So there was no transition for me when, when I got drafted to Buffalo. But I remember a night uh, we, we actually was a team that had finished last for, for five years in a row in the in the major junior A in Ontario Hockey League. And in this new ownership, the first year we finished uh, third. We took the Toronto Marlies to the seventh game of the Ontario Championship, which would have taken us to the Canadian Championship. The next year we finished second. We won the Canadian Championship. And the next year we went finished first and won the league, but then lost in the playoffs. And but that year we'd also gone to uh, Czechoslovakia when communism was still around, 
And uh, we represented Canada in the very first World Junior Tournament where we walked out of there with a the silver medal. Wow. So, but one night, it was a February night in February that my mother was coming to the game and she was running a little bit late. So she turned the game on the local radio and she heard that Punch Imlac was there to scout me. And she told me this after the game. And uh, I'm, why would he be scouting me? I, I mean, I grew up playing a, playing a game. That's what I did. I, I didn't ever have aspirations of going to the NHL. I didn't do anything like have any, those thoughts. I just enjoyed playing a game. I was competitive and I was on a winning organization. And that's really what it was all about was, was playing a game. And uh, so the next game I came out and Punch was always known for wearing his fedora. And they always sat in the corners and I came out and I scored five minutes into the game. I looked up and there was Punch, uh, Punch's hat in the corner. And uh, a couple minutes later, I looked up and it was gone. And, and I saw it heading towards the heading around the outside. And all night long, I'm, you know, you're not supposed to be watching the stands, but all night long, I'm looking. I could never find it. Apparently, he left the game. Uh, he saw what he saw, came to see, and he left. Right. So, interesting that, uh, you know, then when, so like when the agent called and said Buffalo, of course, I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, I didn't even follow hockey as a youngster. I mean, when I was, I'm going to tell you, when I, when I was drafted to Buffalo, I didn't even know who the French connection was. I mean, that's, that's how much it was a game to me. And that's, right. I think that's, made me excel was my competitiveness and I was playing a game. It wasn't, I had aspirations of being an NHL hockey player. I never even thought about it. Mike, Mike, what I really want to do was, as I said, my family was in harness racing. I wanted to be a trainer and a driver for those for doing that, but, uh, which I did when I retired. But, you know, at that point, it was nothing about, uh, about being an NHL hockey player. It's, it's so interesting to me because on last week's podcast, I had a, a friend of mine who was, a major league uh, baseball player. He was a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. And his story is so much similar to yours in the sense that he didn't even, it was just a game to him. Like you just said, he didn't, he didn't have any aspirations of necessarily going to the uh, MLB. And uh, in fact, he said on the podcast that he would have rather, if he, if he could have chosen, he would have rather have been a, a, a basketball player. So it's interesting to me, and, and and I'll dive into this a little bit more with you, and then we'll get into more of your career. But I'll dive into this a little bit more with you because it's you're still around the game. Don't you think it's a little different in today's game where I think these guys have a love for the game, but most of it, understandably, because their careers are so short, right? But a lot of these guys aren't doing it necessarily for the love of the game. They're looking for where they can get the biggest payday. Well, you know, back when I played, the the the, the minimum wage in the NHL was like $32,000. And uh, today it's like $575,000. So, you know, there, there's a motivating factor. I mean, at the same time, I tell people when I, when I was a youngster playing minor hockey back in my hometown in Elmira, Ontario, that I would walk over to the rink. And I remember walking up the stairs and inside the, the lounge up top over, over the rink. There, the, there were card tables set out, and uh, the, the people that ran the minor hockey organization, you'd hand them your $5, and they'd hand they'd write your name on a card, and it would say, a minor, minor hockey uh, member, and then they'd write your name in Rick Sealing, and it would give the year. And that was it. And I'd go home and find out what equipment was in the attic and you know what was left over for my three older brothers that, that maybe I outgrew mine, and I'd have to look into that. I mean, I had some uh, elbow pads at one point 
that were petrified. I mean, we would we would joke and laugh in the dressing room. I'd be breaking uh, chestnuts with them and walnuts with them in the dressing room <laughs> again on the thing. That's how hard they were, and that's how old they were. Right. But I mean, I never received, I never wore my first pair of brand new skates until I was fourteen years old. It was everything wow. was hand me down. Wow. And uh, but we didn't have, you know, the parents when we play out of town. I mean, we would go out and back the same night. You, you didn't, uh, you didn't what they do now with buses and overnights and tournaments and everything else like that. We didn't have that. And so the expense was minimal. And nowadays it, it's costing parents on, if they've got a child playing travel hockey, they're excess of $5,000 a year. Yeah. A thousand times more than what I could, my, my family paid when I played. And so, you know, and, and you do it obviously for the love of the game, but, you know, you get to a certain point and you start looking, this is no longer a game. It's a multi-million dollar business. This body is now a multi-million dollar business. It's not, hey, I can make a living playing a game for the first few years uh, of my adult life. And uh, it's, it's a totally different atmosphere now. And so, you know, the aspects, the, the, the people, way people look at it, it's, it's, uh, it, it definitely has changed. So uh, I was reading I was reading some stuff about you and one of the things that that I read was that and you did something that I mean s- several players do but not many a lot of guys have to work their way up through the minors to the NHL. You got drafted by the uh, the Sabers 14th overall and uh you spent your first uh, full season with the Buffalo Sabers if I'm correct and you had uh 19 goals and 19 assists. Talk to me a little bit about the 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 difference. Did you notice a big difference coming from from uh, juniors to the NHL? Well, you know, I, the game is is that much different. It's it's the game. I shouldn't say it is not different. It's the same game, and you know, it's like when we have players called up from Rochester, and I I was more active years ago talking to some of the players back when players like Derek Roy and them were being called up because I knew these guys. Nowadays. I don't get to interaction with them like I used to. Um, a lot of them don't even know who I was. I was I was I was retired before they were born. But you know, I I remember telling Derek Roy the, the day he got called up. I said, "Look, remember one thing: it's the same game. It's just this much faster. You know, as you step up, it's this much faster. You know, it's like your pitcher friend. He probably got away pitching a fastball at 86 mile an hour." When he went to the pros, he had to pitch 93 mile an hour. Sure. You know, it's just the speed of the game changes. It's it's the same game. And today's game, it's the same game as it was 30 years ago. You know, they, they, they put in different systems. They do this, they do that. But the game is all about triangulation. It's, it's all about attacking the net. And, you know, they, they try to take certain aspects out of the game, which, which I am not a big fan of. I would love to see the red line go back in the – to compartmentalize the game because I think it makes it more skilled. You can't send someone down the ice and, and throw the puck all the way to the far blue line and to take the pressure off. But you know, it's still the same game and, and, and how you, how they approach it, how they do it. You know, I said, these guys, a lot of decisions now are now made based on dollars and cents. Do I play hurt or do I take the time off? I'm still going to get my paycheck. I'm going to rehab. I'm going to get, I'm going to get healthy. And then I can extend my career for maybe a couple more years, or am I going to go out and play hurt and have a nagging injury the rest of my career that could affect my my income potential? So you know, the, it is a big difference, and and the dollars and cents, 
you know, it, it's no longer a sport. It's a business. It's, it's so interesting. And, and I'm with you on the, uh, the, some of the changing of the rules. Uh, uh, I would like to see the red line put back in as well, because I think the whole goal of that, right. Was to increase scoring. And, and I, I don't know, to me, it didn't really seem like it did that much. I mean, it allows guys like us, Sidney Crosby, you know, he can cheat a little bit right now because he can wait and he he can leave the uh he can leave the zone a little quicker to get to the offensive zone if he knows he's got a guy that can make a stretch pass, but it takes away some of the. I also don't like that they've taken away some of the physicality from the game. Well, I, I agree hundred percent. And you know when you when you compartmentalize the game, you have to be more skilled because you're playing in tighter areas. You know you you've got to you're. You're not pulling a defenseman off the blue line, going all the way back to center ice, and a puck comes around the boards and it gets out. You're not getting that. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, back when I played, we usually had three or four 50 goal scorers. Now you're lucky to get one. Right. Uh, per season. And so how is that How is that creating more scoring? I mean, one night uh, two years ago, and it, was, it wasn't the last you've seen before, on a Friday night, there were five shutouts in the NHL. And then on, sat- and on Saturday night, there was three or two. And on Sunday night, there was the opposite of what was on Saturday night. There were 10 shutouts in the NHL on one Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend. When was that ever done? Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you're trying to increase scoring, some of the rules they put in have, have totally done the opposite. It, it, it appears... And maybe it has to do with the size of the, the goalie pads and, and my buddy Vinny Pizzo's in the room and he sells goalie equipment. So uh, he, he, uh, he'll he get a chuckle out of that. But some of these goalies look like sumo wrestlers in the, in the net. We, we took that. We were, I was, I was doing an alumni event in, in Buffalo at the, uh, at the rink and we went into the Sabres room and, and just happened to be Don Edwards had a pair of goal pads in there. Uh, and, uh, and uh, Dominic Hasek's goal pads were in there. And we took one of Donnie's goal pads, and we took both of Dominic's pads. And his two pads were way lighter than the one pad of, of, of Don Edwards. Right. And it just shows you, I mean, you look at these guys, Ryan Miller, Dominic Hasek, they are about as wide as this pen nowadays. Right. Because and they're able to take those pads and throw them through the air and, and Dominic, who doesn't has a sl- spine of a slinky, was able to do things that people couldn't do. Right. And he he really, I think he really de- redesigned goaltending as far as as far as uh, stopping the puck. And uh, it, it's just, but that those goaltenders before, I mean, you look at Bobby Sove, uh, his thighs, his thighs were like were huge, and and they were huge because he had to because he had those heavier pads back then. So yeah, you're right about the equipment. And 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 the goaltending, and you know I've I've heard and I think it was Scotty Bowman that said this to me one day. He said, you know what? They're talking about making the nets bigger. Why don't you just make the posts smaller? <laughs> yeah, and that will add a, that will add an inch or two to each side of the each side of the net. So there's a good another two inches that you added net without really making the nets bigger. Sure, absolutely. So let's talk. Let's talk about now. You're in the NHL. Take me back to that first. Do you remember that first game in the NHL? Oh, very well. <laughs> can you can you t- talk to us about that first game and 
and uh, the butterflies had to be uh, crazy, right? Well, we were we were playing Boston in Buffalo that night. It was an exhibition game, and I told you I didn't follow, so I I didn't know who the other guys on the other side were. There were some names that were familiar to me, uh, Donnie Marcotte, to uh, uh, who who was a friend of my brother's, and and I met with I. I I had socialized with him before I went off to my first camp. They gave me a few pointers about things to watch out for, some traps not to fall into, and stuff like that. But we uh, we were on the we were, the face off was down in in our zone by the door where we came on and off the ice, uh, and uh, and uh, you know the the puck dropped, and I think it was Josh Gavermont and and uh, Marcotte that that got into a scuffle. And right, and coming in and grabbing Gavermont was uh, a guy by the name of John Wensick. Oh, I didn't know what John Wensick was. I had no idea who John Wensick was. As I said, I didn't follow. And uh, so I grab him, I pull him off. And so we're standing there holding each other. And this is my very first game in the NHL. The referee standing beside us says, let go or you're both gone. Well, obviously, I'm a 19-year-old kid. I don't want to get tossed out of my first game. So I let go, and what does he do? Bang. Oh. <laughs> I'm struggling, trying to hang on and hold on to him and that. And next thing I know, Danny Gare is leaving the penalty box, and uh, there's a bench-clearing brawl. And so we all go into a big pile. I'm down on the very bottom. Wensick, is, he's got his legs across my head and his, his, his head towards my butt. He can't do anything because everybody's on top of him. So we're both pinned. What's he do? He bites me in the middle of the back. Really? A couple of nights later, we're in Rochester. Rochester was the farm team for Boston at the time. We're dressing in the basement. They have the Amherst dressing room. Uh, but during that game, uh, I don't know what happened to, to the point, but Wensick grabbed uh, grab Jerry Korab by the shoulder and Jerry reached back and picked his legs up and just body slammed like you're watching the WWF. And after they asked, came down and asked Korab why he was so hard on Wednesday. And I remember I had a green shirt on that night. I'm down there, I'm showered, put, buttoning my shirt up. And he, uh, and he, uh, he comes up, he says, Hey kid, come on over here. Cause he said, Wensick bit our kid the other night in the back. They, no, 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 no. Turn around. He picked up my shirt. Both imprints, upper and lower marks, were still in the middle of my still back. There. And uh, if you read John Cherry's book, it, I think he makes mention of that happening too. So but that was my first NHL game. That is, that's quite, that's quite an introduction to the NHL. <laughs> that's quite an introduction. It's interesting. While we're talking about the physicality, of the game, and you brought it up in in the story you just told, um, and I had mentioned that I that I didn't like the fact that they've taken away some of the physicality, but on some level, I think it was a necessity, right? Because back then, it was like an all out. I mean, there were things happening that would never happen today. Well, you know, the, the thing is, and one of the other rules I'm not a fan of is the the checking from behind rule. Because nowadays they teach the kids when you're along the board, somebody comes at you, turn your back to them. You got to, you turned your back on somebody, you were going to be sitting in the third row. And, you know, you have more guys being turning their back. And I tell you what, I think those boards are more dangerous to your chin 
than somebody hitting me face on. Sure. And I think that is has has made it much more dangerous. Plus also the improvement in the game or the equipment. You know, I see guys here. We had a guy, and I can't remember his last name, Joe, big guy, a tough guy that uh, was up in Buffalo for a little bit. They put him on waivers. He got picked up by Edmund. He went out there and played there for the year. But the guy was 215 pounds. But you looked at him in his equipment, he looked like he was 275. The equipment is so big nowadays. Your shoulder pad, my shoulder pad was here. My right. shoulder's here, shoulder pad was here. Nowadays, the shoulder pad's out here. And you've got that hard plastic. And the one thing they can't protect is your chin. So guys get hit here. They're, they're with, with this equipment that's way out here that sticks, that protrudes out. It makes you more dangerous. I mean, if they bring it back in and, 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 and curtail it down so there's nothing sticking out and, and, you know, and you put that rule back, you don't put that, you take that rule back out and guys got to stand in there. Also, when you know you're not going to get hit from behind, you're going into that corner faster, knowing the guy's not going to hit you. Right. And so and that's sometimes I notice that when I'm watching a game, if a guy knows that he's going to take the hit, sometimes he will turn his back so that he can try to draw the hitting from behind penalty. Exactly. You're exactly right on that, David. And and that's why that's why I think that rule is a false protection. And these guys and these and even in today and kids in minor hockey, they teach them that. Right. They tell you to turn your back and protect the puck because he's not going to hit you. Right. And that to me is it, it just it's it it takes away the skill level. You've got to learn how to get around somebody, you gotta find somebody, you gotta move the puck to an open zone, to a quiet zone, whatever you're gonna do. But to just turn around and use your body to protect the puck along the boards, I, I just I think it takes away from the game. And it's not and it's also not really fair to the defensive player, right? Because well, you guys are very good at stopping on your skates. If you're coming into the boards and all of a sudden the guy just at the last second turns and faces his back towards you, how are you really supposed to stop without making contact? Exactly. And that's it. And a lot of these guys that, you know, you, you, you just blow in their direction and they'll fall down to, to, to try and draw that penalty on you. And so, you know, whether, whether it's an incidental hit, whether it's an intentional hit or whether it's the guy trying to draw the penalty, you know, it, it just makes it, 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 it's really, I think if they were to stand and face the music, you know, coming at them, I think you'd have less injuries that way around the boards. Right. Listen, well, well, I've got a second here. We're going to take a, we're going to, we're going to clean the ice for just 15 seconds while I read this commercial that I need to read. If you guys are looking for a sweet treat for your kids, even if you've got a sweet tooth yourself, you know, when I used to go to the Emirates game, the first thing I'd want to get was some cotton candy. Well, listen, I've got cotton candy that takes it to a whole new level with Falenga's gourmet cotton candy. If you want, I just had my nieces over. I was the greatest uncle in the world because I got them some cotton candy. They had uh, bubble gum. They had Shirley Temple. They tried it all and they loved it all. So if you would like some gourmet cotton candy, call Jennifer at 585-415-1817. Tell them wheels sent you. You're not going to regret it. I'll tell you that. It's great stuff. So let's get back to, let's drop the puck again. Uh, so now we talked about your first game and that that great story. Do you remember your first your first NHL 
goal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think anybody ever forgets their first goal. It was in the old Montreal Forum, playing the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, I have personally been involved in three shutouts in my career against the Montreal Canadiens in the Montreal Forum. Really? Three. One was that my first goal it was assisted by Andre Savard and Gary McAdam, a pass out of the corner, out of the left-wing corner to me out front, and a five-hole through Bunny LaRock's legs. It was the first goal of the game and the game winner. We won that night four to nothing. Wow. Do you still – here's 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 the next question. Do you st- Did you get to keep the puck? Oh, absolutely. That's mounted. <laughs> that's absolutely – that's mounted. Yeah, that's uh... – so I'm I was I was as a kid I used to go to all the Amherst games and uh, um, uh, uh, we used to go in the locker room so I know uh, Ken Weisbeck and his wife Colleen really well and I I used I used to hang around guys like uh, Rob Ray uh, Darcy Walkaluck was a really good friend of mine in fact when he got inducted into the Amherst Hall of Fame I got to spend a little bit of time with him and. Uh, uh, Darcy actually gave me his first game winning puck, uh, uh, from when he was with the Sabres. And it's something that I will, uh, forever cherish because that's a it, big moment. It's kind of embarrassing. Darcy had a harder shot than I did. You know, Darcy, it's an, it's an interesting story. Uh, and uh, I was a younger, younger kid, so I don't know that I necessarily remembered this, but I remember them talking about during his. Hall of Fame induction that he actually, uh, and you might actually remember this, but he actually played uh, in a game where he did not play goalie. That I did not know. Yeah, he, uh, I can't remember what position he played, but they, they were short in that position. And, uh, and uh, so he actually uh, played uh, as one of the, the skaters on the ice and not in net. So that, that was an interesting story to me. Uh, it's interesting to me. Uh, I want to talk a little bit uh, too about your, your coaching career because after you were with the Sabres, you, you got traded to Detroit and you spent one season with, did you spend it with Detroit or were you in their minor league system? No, I was with Detroit. Uh, that was their first year where they started to climb back, uh, into prominence. Uh, they had a good young crew there. Stevie Eiserman, the captain, guys like Sean Burr, Steve Chason, uh, Jerry Gallant. Um, and what they did was they brought in kind of similar to what you're seeing with the Sabres right now. They're bringing, they brought in some veteran players, uh, guys like Tim Higgins, Harold Schneps, Michael Connell, myself, uh, Glenn Hanlon, some veteran players help bring these kids along. And that's one of the things you don't see in, in hockey today as much because those veteran players command so much money. And now they have a salary cap in place. You just can't afford to, 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 to do that. And then, then they continued to weed them out, weed us out. And so the next year, they made me the offer, an offer to go to Adirondack to the Glens Falls and uh, uh, be the assistant coach slash player development coach. Because back then, they didn't have what they call player development coaches. But that was the title they gave me. And I had six kids that year. And... Uh, um, they turned, and, and all six of those kids eventually did turn pro. Uh, guys like Glenn Sharples, part of the Crazy Eights line in Philadelphia. Sure. Uh, Doug, 
a Hall of Famer here in in in, in uh, Rochester. Doug Huda had him there, and uh, uh, Mark Lamb had a number of guys that that eventually turned pro. And that was my job was just to work with them. And you know, I was supposed to play when we didn't have enough players because they didn't have a full roster, which happened to be almost every single game. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I let them play and I'd fill in and, and, uh, and work with them on the bench during the game and, and then practices and stuff like that. So it, 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 I thought it was going to be a, a, a long-term thing. It turned out to be only one year. The end of my contract came due and, and, uh, they, all the players that I had played them played in, uh, Detroit the next year and they had no prospects coming in. So they couldn't justify having a, having a, a, a coach there that that's there for a development coach there when they had nobody to develop. Now it's interesting. They seem to have coaches in today's game. They have a, they have a video coach. They have a, uh, they have all kinds of coaches. Yeah. I think they have a coach for almost every, every stage of your life now. <laughs> right. So it is, it is interesting how the game has come along, but take me back for just a second. When, when you get traded to Detroit, now you've spent your whole career with Buffalo. So, uh, Talk. That's got. Is that? Is there a moment where you're like, man, it's got to hurt a little bit to be traded, unless you're it really be traded. It really did. It, it it hit me hard. I mean, I spent nine years in Buffalo. It was my home, and uh, um, the fact that I was moving to Michigan uh, to an organization that that was that was struggling and uh, new coach and, uh, but you know, I'm going to tell you that Mike Illich. Uh, I'm glad he was around. I'm, I'm glad he was able to uh, to, to experience the Stanley Cup. Um, that year we lost to Edmonton, and I think it was I think it was the semis. And uh, I got on the bus that night in Edmonton, and I and I, he was in the front seat, and I said, "I apologize. I'm sorry." And he goes, he, he looked at me like he was mystified. I mean, it's the farthest his team has ever gone before since he owned this team. And he said, "Why?" He said, he "said if there's ever a league, I said I've been a player up in this league for five years." I know all the owners, and I know that if there's ever an owner that deserves a Stanley Cup, it's you, Mr. Illich. And I am so glad. I mean, the guy was he, – he was solid. He was a, a family man. He, treat, he took care of everybody. I know guys that were down on their luck, and he set them up in little Caesars, helped them out, get them through. He was concerned about the player, and uh, he was just an, uh, a top-notch owner, and he, his concern for, for the individual – went far above anybody I'd seen as, as an owner in the NHL. And I said, you deserve a Stanley cup more than anybody I know. That's a, that's a great story. That's a great, that's a, that's a, a phenomenal story. And these are the tidbits that you, as a fan, we don't, we don't get right. We don't, we don't, you know, we, I, I remember. So I remember the first time I met, uh, I keep going back to Darcy cause Darcy was the one I was closest with. You know, he used to bring me into the locker room and we'd sit by his stall and, and uh, we'd talk. And the first time I, I remember meeting him, I was going in for surgery the very next day. And, uh, and he he came up into the sta- into the stands at the old uh, War Memorial. And I was uh, Section 7. And here comes my favorite player that I, you know, I've grown up watching. And he's got a poster signed for me. and And it was just a great moment. But that's the other thing I want to talk to you about now, because as you're uh, with your position with the Amherst now as the color comment uh, commentator, uh, do, it seems to me that when I was a kid 
players were around for a lot longer. So you got to you got invested in the player a little bit more. Uh, guys like Jody Gage, uh, you know, Rob Ray was here for a, a while. Uh, players like that. It seems to me now that guys don't stick around. If they're in the minors for any length of time, they're jumping around from team to team. Do you think that's hurt the AHL? Well, you know, I might be part to blame for that. Okay. Why? <laughs> so. You know, as as a as a player rep, you're like the union steward. You represent your team with the, with the with the players association, and twice a year we have meetings with the board of directors. And back then there were there were eleven board of directors that represented the ownership. And uh, I remember in one meeting I sat, I stood up, and I said, I said, as an association, we should be embarrassed. And they looked they looked strangely at me, and I said, you know, I said. We have a player that was in the NHL all the previous year. I said the following year, due to draft picks and numbers, he was back in the AHL. And we did nothing to protect his rights. As a player in the NHL, we did nothing to help him. And I said, that to me is embarrassing. And I said, we as a, as a board for the players association and the board of directors we're here to protect our sides but also to improve our product and lou nanny uh, jumped up and said uh, well i'm not rating my uh i'm not rating my uh minor system and i stopped and I went whoa hold on one second one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve i thought there was only eleven of you well, the owner of Minnesota North Stars, uh, Mr. Gunn, George Gunn, was blind. He says, I need to bring Mr. Gunn in to the meetings. And that this is one of the few times I had some respect for Al Eagleson. He said, you bring him to the door, I'll bring him the rest of the way. That's awesome. No, but the, the fact was, you know, where we where the players are today on their collective bargaining agreement, we didn't jump from what was. We're told Blake was hiding five first-rounders and had five more first-rounders lined up in his minor system and they never got out all right we're out of that we took it one step at a time and and this was the first step players spent so much time in the minors and then they became free agents they didn't they weren't owned by their parent team anymore they could become free agents so and i said i said i know for a fact that this player could probably make seven at least seven different teams in the nhl and help them and be productive. Sure. And the following year, we made the change. That player was Randy Cunningworth. Wow. Randy. Another another great player, Randy, who, man, I, I wish that he had, he had gotten a better, you know, he got to be the bench boss uh, for the Montreal Canadiens there for a little bit, but then got run out of town because he didn't speak uh, French-Canadian. And yeah. I, I tend to think that's a little bit of a shame because I think he'd be a a pretty solid a pretty solid coach, but you know you have to speak uh, you have to speak the language in in Montreal. Well, Randy's a solid citizen. He's a great person and a great individual. And you know, I'm glad I've had the privilege to uh, to play alongside of him. And even on our rec leagues, he was used to be my defense partner here in Rochester until he moved back to Canada. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so now I want to talk to you a little bit because we were we, we were talking off air uh, before we went on, and I was asking you, uh, you know, if you your thoughts on the AHL uh, season getting started. And uh, there's two reasons I bring this up. First of all, because I'm a huge fan of of uh, uh, our minor league hockey team, and I just love going to the game. In fact, I was at the last game before the season got shut down because of the coronavirus. Uh, so uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Like when the season's, when and if the season will be coming back and what that will look like? Well, there's, there's a number of mitigating factors on that. And uh, first of all, I think the NHL has to get going first. How they're going to handle it. I mean, when they what they had just completed was exciting hockey, was playoff hockey, and it was all self-contained, as they call it, in the bubble. Um, how you can do that in the NHL has some chance of, of working because they all have private planes now. You know, so the, the planes are not, you're not going on charter or you're not going on, on regular uh, commercial aircrafts like we used to when I first started. We didn't have private planes. We didn't have uh, charters. We, we flew commercial, flew out the night before, flew the night, flew home the next morning. And, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how the NHL approaches that this year. Uh, the, NH- the AHL said they were going to start their season in, in December, and now it's pushed back to February. The issue that I see with the AHL is private ownership, all right? There are a lot of teams that are in the AHL that are not owned by NHL teams. Right. And and those those owners, that ownership needs uh, fans in the stands. They need advertisers. They need concessions. They need parking. If they don't, they can't survive. Why would you open your doors knowing you're going to lose hundreds of thousands, maybe million dollars? Why would you? So, you know, that's my big thing right now. If, you, if they can't get the advertisers, if, I'm not going to spend my advertising dollars when nobody's going to be there. Right. And it's, you know, it's so, and a lot of times you've got local advertisers be supporting the local team and it's just not going to be done. Uh, so, the revenue stream, it's and again, it all it's all based on revenue. And the revenue stream has to be there for a, an owner, owner to at least minimally break even or minimal losses. So I have heard uh, uh, one of my alumnus mentioned to me that he heard possibility of 17 teams in the AHL. So that makes me think even more so. Okay, 17 teams. The, the objective of Gary Bettman was to have one AHL team for every NHL team. If he has 17 teams in the AHL playing, you could take two NHL teams, take over ownership or operations of one AHL team, and each team puts their top 10 prospects on there. Because without the AHL playing, it's going to have a long-term effect on the development of their current draft picks and players that are looking to make that next step in, they're not going to be developing and there's going to be issues and there could be a lag in, in, uh, in future players making it into the NHL and also to the quality of the players playing in the NHL. So 
I'm thinking that, you know, maybe this might be a what if uh, scenario in the event that 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 they they do go to seven, only 17 teams. Again, it, it, that would take each team. NHL team would still get to develop their top 10 prospects for the future, which helps, which will help them down the road. And, you know, the question is, what happens to the other team? So I'm, I, I would think that, you know, with, with Rochester having ownership from the Sabres, that they would most likely, if they if that was the if that's the game plan, they would most likely be one of the teams that that would go in. So you know, Rochester's had a great history, and you know them and Hershey, the two longest around. And uh, I can't see leaving either of those two teams out because they're just so rich in history. Right. It it is it is you you had you actually in that answered my next question was some of these. David, hold on one second. Yeah. I gotta make one disclaimer here. Okay. Anything I've said is my own personal feelings and does not come from any insider information, as I am not privy to what goes on behind any closed doors anywhere. It's it's so funny because I was just gonna mention that for you that this is just conjecture and your own thoughts and and uh but as someone that's been around the game for a long time and and uh uh, I think you have a pretty good insight into some of uh, the inner workings of what might be going on. But it's interesting because I also did just read an article from Yahoo Sports that said some of the NHL ownership is saying to Gary Bettman, uh, we don't want to play unless we can have fans in the stands because it doesn't really do us any good because we're not making the kind of money we could be making either. Although they are making more money because of television revenue and all that kind of stuff. Well, their, their, their revenue, you know, it's always been stated that, you know, as, you know, as the revenue comes in, so does the cost, the expenses, they come in too. Hence the higher salaries, hence the, you know, the cost of operations and having everybody, uh, having everybody uh, uh, that's, that, that goes into putting a game together, having them on payroll. So all that stuff, all that comes together. So, you know, and it's always been uh, since I ever started playing in the NHL, I've always been told you play the season to try and break even. You make money, the owner, talking for the owners, you make your money by being in the playoffs. And that's that's been the telltale for years. Is it today with the, we didn't have the uh, the the TV contracts that they have, but again, even with that money coming in, you now some of these teams you you got multi million dollar payrolls. I mean, minimum salary in the NHL. I'm pretty sure I'm confident in saying that one of my favorite all time players, by the way, is going to be 70 years old on uh, Friday. Jill Perot didn't make didn't make what the minimum salary in the NHL is today. Wow, that. That puts it all in perspective. Puts it all in perspective. I listen. We've only got a few more minutes with you because I I know you've got some ribs cooking and you got to get those off the got to get those off the the smoker. So we got a few yeah. more minutes with you here. I'm gonna get you out of here right at eight o'clock. Uh, we started a little bit late, but that was on my end. But I, before I let you go, I have to talk to you about because uh, we've got Sabres fans in the, in the. The room here, you can see in the comments. Uh, 
Talk to me a little bit about some of the moves that you've seen the Sabres made, uh, bringing in a guy like Taylor Hall. Uh, they seem to have, it's been some pretty dark days for the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, but, but it seems to be, it seems to be turning around a little bit. It seems that, you know, like, uh, from what, from what I'm reading in that, that, uh, Ralph Kruger was, that, uh, Taylor Hall had his best time playing for Ralph Kruger when he took over, when he's the interim coach in Ed Edmonton. And maybe he's got the key, the key to unlock him. You, you see guys come out, he was Taylor Hall, number one overall pick, uh, highly rated, highly skilled, has struggled, um, has been on multiple teams and, and hasn't been able to get get what it, the expectations out of him that maybe Ralph thinks he can and hopefully he can. Also bringing in some some uh, players who have been on winning teams before. I think that, you know, and, and I'm, I, I think that Jason Botterill and, and Chris Taylor were on the right track here. I feel that it's easy to teach a player how to lose. It's not easy to teach him how to win. Right. Go back to my junior team. I told you in the three years, the team had finished in the basement five years. And in three years, we won everything a junior team could possibly win. And, you know, those turnarounds. And the key was we had the new coach, but there were very few players left from the year before. You know, all the, all the players coming in, where most of the players, I'm going to say 80% of the players were were new players, rookie players, new players, or players brought in from other teams, and they got rid of the old atmosphere. And the coach instilled a different atmosphere in the team, kind of like you see what what uh, the Bills coach is instilling in his team. It's all about atmosphere with him, and I agree with that 100%. And I thought that Chris Taylor was building a winning atmosphere here, and my 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 philosophy was this. Build a winning atmosphere here and don't bring one player up at a time or two players up at a time because they'll teach them how to lose. Bring five or seven or even 10 of them up all at once. Right. Develop them here, get the atmosphere that, that I will not quit, I will not lose attitude and, and bring them all up at once and their attitude will spill over to the others. And I, that's what I liked, what I saw about this team here. And uh, I liked about this team. I thought that's what they were doing. They were building a winning atmosphere here. And, you know, that was one of the things when the new owners took over back when they bought it. They were going to build from within. But I've never seen them until these last couple of years that this attitude has, has, has gone to positive instead of negative. You're always waiting for the wheels to fall off when they got a lead, but not anymore. You, you see them coming back from behind. You see them extending on that lead and going after the other team. And that's what I like what I saw. And I hope with the new new uh, coaching staff and and, and uh, the new general manager, the Sabres, that they will conti continue to do that because I think having this organization being your feeder to that one, you need players coming up with the right attitude. Right. And you have the right attitude in the dressing room. And, again, it goes back to your original question is they're bringing in players that have been on winning teams. They're bringing in players for leadership. And I think that's going to really help the organization. It's interesting that you said, you know, don't bring up one guy at a time. Because the one thing I've always said as a fan is if you've got a, if you've got a line, right, that is clicking here in, in Rochester, but you say we're going to take one guy off that line and we're going to bring him up to the NHL. 
Well, his chemistry is built with the, the reasons he's playing so well is because of the chemistry he's built with his line mates. Why don't you try bringing all three of, of them up and see if that sparks something? I, 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 I agree with you on that, David. There, there are certain instances, though, where maybe one or two of those other guys can't play at that level. Yeah. Right. I mean, we had a, we had a, you know, there's a, there's a great hockey player that played in Rochester for many years. And I know Scotty Broman brought him up and he was, he was potting goals left and right in Rochester and they brought him up and he just couldn't remember. I told you the difference is that much. Right. And couldn't make that adjustment to his game. He couldn't speed his game up just that much where he had the time in Rochester to make that play. He didn't have it in Buffalo against the opposition and that just that. So the key is getting the right players playing together that you can. But if you can get a group of young players coming in and and they're all playing, you know, and, and they're all your prospects and they're ready to make that move, bring a group up at once and, and you know, get rid of some of the, the, the dead wood. And again, I hate to say use that word, but but you're if when you're in a rebuilding stage, mm. you've got to bring them up at the right time and you know and I wish I knew what the right time was. And if I did, I'd be in Vegas. Yeah, right. You and me both. I, I'm going to let you go. I just have to say this. I, I joke with my friends who are, are uh, Sabres fans too, because with there being some dark times here and not, not so many winning seasons, I've said I would jump ship to another team, but I have so much Sabres paraphernalia that it would it would cost me way too much money to invest in another team. So I'm stuck. All right. Well, it's been great being here tonight. I was sad, everybody. I can't see the comments because I don't have my glasses on. They're down here. That's all right. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another Wednesdays with Wheels. I hope you enjoyed. Next week, we have comedian and the host of the big show on Radio 95.1. David Earl Reed is joining us on the program. So make sure you tune in for that. If you want some Wednesdays with Wheels merchandise, head on over to my Facebook page and we'll get you some of that. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next week. Everybody be safe out there. Yes.